Hey, Strange New Worlds listeners, Happy New Year! This is Mike Wong, and it's a pleasure to be back in your ears talking about two of my favorite topics, science and Star Trek. I want to start off this brand new year by thanking each and every one of you for tuning in, especially you new listeners who found out about this podcast through Trek FM's The Edge and Warp 5 podcasts. That's right, in December, I recorded guest parts on two Trek FM podcasts. I'm on episode 23 of The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast, talking about the science behind the spore drive. And I'm also on episode 128 of Warp 5, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast, where we do a retrospective on episodes in Season 3 of Enterprise, and I chime in every once in a while with a cool science tidbit. You can find both of those episodes and more amazing Star Trek content at trek.fm. And I want to extend a real big heartfelt thanks to Brandon Shea Mutala for inviting me into the Trek FM family. Now, today I'm going to play for you a fun little interview that I did last December with my buddy, Dr. Peter Gao. We tagged up at the end of the American Geophysical Union Conference, and together we do a quick recap of the conference and of the first nine episodes of Star Trek Discovery. And then after the interview, I'll talk a little bit about the future of Strange New Worlds for the first quarter of 2018. Ready? Here we go. Happy New Year. Happy New Year's. Oh my God, 2017 went by so fast. It, it certainly did. <laughs> I don't know where all the time went. But yeah, Peter and I are catching up at AGU, the American Geophysical Union Conference, fall meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana, second week of December. 2017. Yeah, you can hear the hustle and bustle of all the uh, conference goers all around us. It's crazy here, <laughs> like 25,000 geoscientists from around the world studying everything from hydrology to paleoclimate to Jupiter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what have we even seen? I feel like this week has gone by so fast, but because I've been listening to so many great talks, mm. I mean, for me, what really sticks out were the Juno and Cassini sessions, Monday and Tuesday. Yeah. I really felt like, even though I don't actually work on Jupiter or Saturn, I really needed to be at them because, I mean, what a time to be alive. We've got the Juno spacecraft in orbit of Jupiter, understanding its interior. We have the Cassini spacecraft that just did its swan dives between Saturn and its rings and then dove into Saturn and died but along the way gathered basically equivalent data for Saturn's interior and we're learning about the middles of these gas giant planets for the first time in all of this detail and I just think to myself two years ago these sessions didn't exist nobody was having a Juno session two years from now maybe we'll still be analyzing data but also maybe not like eventually this is going to die down we have I mean, I just, I just need to be in those sessions. Yeah. For these one or two years, uh, Juno and Cassini will be big news, and that's why the first two days of this conference was dedicated to both of these missions. Juno, I think, had a whole morning to it, and there were no other sessions, at least in planetary science. 
And yes, it's just, it's very exciting just getting so much information dumped at you all at once about these giant planets in our solar system. What else is great about AGU? I feel like just seeing people from, I mean, okay, like our, our academic <laughs> careers have not been very long, but still, I feel like there are so many people that we know from other places, other institutions. I mean, you're at another institution, even yes. though I consider you my Caltech friend, because that's where we've met yeah. and where we've been friends for the past several years. You never but, I mean, really leave Caltech. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're at Berkeley now, and I, I've been meeting friends from like past internships, people that I know from all the way back to like elementary school, which is incredible. Um, so AGU is just this huge kind of reunion experience every single year. And that's something that I really appreciate about it, that I get to see my friends from the fields that are similar to planetary science, but also just outside planetary science, like geology and geochemistry, mineralogy. We've been fortunate and privileged to travel to lots of places and lots of conferences. And uh, certainly I also have friends from Caltech, but also friends that I made purely within conferences. And I also treat meetings like AGU and there's other ones. Uh, I guess there was a podcast about DPS that came out. Which you of, were on. Which I was also on, yes. There's a trend. <laughs> there seems to be a trend here. That also serve as, as certainly a place to learn about science, but also a place to hang out with friends you know, get reunions going and so on. And especially this year, AGU, uh, as Mike said earlier, is held in the great city of New Orleans, Louisiana. And tell us about, first of all, did you have any time to play around in New Orleans at all, Mike? Certainly. We organized it so that both of us arrived Friday night, the Friday before the conference started. So we had the weekend to explore. And I'd say the highlight from the weekend was definitely the swamp tour. Swamps. Yeah. Oh, what a... Okay. This is such a great story. Okay, so it was abnormally cold in Louisiana this past weekend. When we arrived uh, Friday night, it was below freezing. It had snowed earlier in that day, which freaked out all the locals because I guess it doesn't really snow in New Orleans. And being from Southern California... Also, I'm not very used to snow, so it was, uh, we were unprepared for the level of cold that there was. But we still wanted to go on a swamp tour. And on the Uber ride there, our driver basically found out that we were going to a swamp tour and told us we were in for a world of pain. We were going to die. Shards of glass because it was so cold. And also that we would not see a single thing because all of the wildlife would be hiding away and hibernating. Apparently crocodiles do this thing when it gets below 60 degrees Fahrenheit where they just dig a hole into the mud by the swamp and just bury themselves in it to keep their body temperatures up because they're cold blooded. And so he bet us a thousand dollars, this Uber driver, that we would not see a single crocodile. Sorry, not crocodile. Whenever I said crocodile, I meant alligator. Oh my gosh, alligator, right. Okay, yes. He bet us a thousand dollars that we would not see a single alligator. And you know what? We saw two alligators. We saw two alligators. He owes us $2,000. So we need to find that Uber driver and get our $2,000, right, yeah. Peter? And it wasn't that cold. It wasn't shards of glass. Yeah. Maybe glass marbles to the face or something. But it certainly wasn't shards. Yeah. Well, it was just a great experience, you know, being on the swamp, seeing a completely different ecosystem from what you get in California, either northern or southern, and to see the wildlife. It was just, it was wonderful. It was a landscape I've certainly never seen before. 
and um, not only is it just uh, a boat tour through the swamp and say, oh, look at this, they taught us a lot of very interesting factoids about the wildlife there, about the ecosystem, and so on. We also got to see the place where Disney got all their inspiration for all of their animated swamp scenes. So, speaking of cool facts that you've learned, Peter, <laughs> what really impressed you about AGU this year? What, in particular, what session or talk or just factoid that you learned really sticks out in your mind? There were a couple of things. As with most of these conferences, the days kind of pass in a blur. But certainly the downloading information from Juno was very impressive. I study, again, I study mostly atmospheres, so all the little mysteries that, are, that have been revealed there were certainly very interesting, such as the composition of Jupiter's atmosphere. For example, one thing that we know is that Jupiter has a lot of clouds made of ammonia. And typically, when you have clouds, the amount of ammonia vapor would decrease with altitude in the atmosphere, and, but, but below the cloud, the ammonia concentration will be well mixed. The ratio of ammonia to the rest of the atmosphere is air, should be constant. But instead what we see is that there is a depletion, less ammonia below the cloud compared to sort of a deep reservoir. And that depletion has not yet been explained, although uh, I saw earlier today that Mike seems to have an interesting explanation. Well, I, I gave a poster this afternoon about this ammonia depletion and how it could possibly be explained by alien life forms in Jupiter. Basically, strange bacteria in Jupiter that would slowly sink through its atmosphere, gobbling up ammonia and using that as part of its energy source. And that was the whole thought experiment that I presented today. It was spurred by the fact that Chung Lee is a postdoc at Caltech, just down the hall from where I work, so I was able to get a sneak peek at some of the ammonia results from Juno, because he's on the mission, and he told me about this ammonia depletion and the region that it was in, and it seems to be in a, by most definitions, habitable region, habitable in terms of the water content in that region and the temperature and the pressure. And if you have a habitable region and some out of equilibrium or deficit chemical species, one explanation, one possible explanation, is that there's life there causing that depletion. So I explored that possibility. Again, this is not a proof that life exists on Jupiter. I'm not crazy in suggesting that there definitely is life on Jupiter. All I did was a few order of magnitude calculations that showed if you made some assumptions about the Jupiter life forms and showed that they have similar bioenergetic needs to life forms here on Earth that are known to have metabolisms that consume ammonia, then it's entirely plausible. Plausible. Nice. <laughs> plausible, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're now halfway through our time because we have to go catch a flight yes. back <laughs> to our respective homes. So I want to switch the topic away from AGU to Star Trek. <laughs> So we're not going to try to force a link between the science at AGU and Star Trek this time. We're just going to have two distinct segments, a nice recap of AGU that we just had, and now a nice recap of the first nine episodes of Star Trek Discovery, the first chapter of the first season of this great new show. And Peter, what are your thoughts? Well, I really enjoy the show. I think the main thing, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's really interesting to note that the last time I saw 
uh, Star Trek on television uh, was Enterprise, and that ended in 2005, right, Mike? Yeah, 2000 and, well, oh, goodness. It was the spring of my first year of high school, <laughs> which would actually be 2005. Yes, yes, you're right, 2005. Yeah, all right, all right. We did, that. we did the right calculations there. Um, yeah, 2005, so, right, so that was 12 years ago. And my priorities in watching TV then versus my priorities now as, uh, I guess, an adult uh, <laughs> has been very different. So back then, I, you know, I really liked the action that was going on, the, the uh, action scenes, the plotting and everything. Now I'm paying much more attention to the characters. And one thing that Discovery is really good about is the characters. And, you know, I'm really happy to say that I care a lot about every single one of the characters. They all have their distinct personalities, they all have their distinct foibles and flaws, and that's very important. They all have some sort of flaws, which I guess could you know, somewhat make them different from the perfect human beings of, of some of the earlier series, but that's why I love them. In fact, I was on the edge of my seat during that last episode, Into the Forest I Go, where I thought, spoilers, Lieutenant Stamis was going to die because he was making a hundred something jumps. And I was like, don't die, please, I love you so much. <laughs> but he didn't die. Instead, he became, I don't know, a cosmic traveler of some sort. Uh, so I'm very excited to see what happens then. Overall though, you know, uh, Michael Burnham, Lorca, Stamets, Tilly, um, and, and, all, and all the others, they're just super interesting to me. I value each and every one of them. Saru, there's always Saru. Ash Tyler, who, you know, who, who knows what he is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so who do you care about most? Man, I think Stamets. Yeah. Yeah. For me too, yeah. yes. He's a scientist slash engineer. He's kind of, I don't know, neurotic about lots of things. He talks really fast sometimes. He just speaks to me <laughs> in that way. I don't know what that means. In terms of my personality, but he speaks to me in that way. Lorca is also extremely interesting. I don't quite relate to him, but he is extremely intriguing. We, I'm pretty sure we still only know about 10%, maybe 20% of what he's been up to and what he's about. I mentioned them as being, I guess, my favorites, but all the other ones are, are right below that. And if we had time, I would go through why I love each and every one of them, but we don't have that time, so maybe later. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's definitely also Stamets. I was really struck by the scene where Lorca convinces Stamets to do the 133 jumps right. in that last episode. You're asking us to use the drive in ways we've never conceived of. The sport delivery system isn't configured to handle the amount of volume that would be required. And that's going to stop you? I don't think so. I mean, Lorca really appeals to Stamets's explorer, his inner explorer. I know what drives you, Lieutenant. You're not just a scientist. You're an explorer. You could have stayed in the lab on Earth, but you chose to go where no one has gone before. Let me show you something. Look, by doing these jumps, it is harming you, and you are putting yourself at risk, but look at all the great data that you're getting <laughs> about the unexplored nature of space and time, possible alternate universes. You showed me this invention could take us to places we never dreamed we could reach. Captain, I didn't know you cared. 
we can save Pablo, defeat the Klingons, and do all this, 133 jumps it is. That just really spoke to me because the fact that Star Trek is about a bunch of people who are exploring outer, outer space has always appealed to me. And even though Lorca was probably being super manipulative of Stamets because he knows what will get his officers to do what is necessary to win the war, that sentiment, whether it was genuine or not from the captain, was definitely genuine in Stamets. And I admired that. Yes. Yes, it's so often in, uh, in, in even Star Trek and most other sci-fi series where when one character tries to convince another, it's through fear or duty. Here, it's through, essentially, uh, inspiration. And that's, yeah. that's awesome. Okay, Peter, so I, I want to ask you one final question before we have to go and catch our flight. And the question is this. Okay. The first nine episodes of Star Trek Discovery versus the three Kelvin timeline movies that we have. I don't know if there's gonna be a fourth, maybe there is, that Quentin Tarantino rumor is out there at this time. Maybe by the time this podcast actually airs, we'll know more about that, but we're recording in mid-December. So the fourth movie is still a hazy cloud out there, mm -hmm. yet to coagulate into something more definitive, but the three Kelvin movies versus the first nine episodes of Star Trek Discovery, which ones, which is better to you? And why? That is a terrifying question. <laughs> it's hard to say because the series, the Discovery series is so recent, right? So it's more in my memory. I would say, I, I remember coming out of Star Trek 2009 with a smile on my face, just unending smile. And that almost never happens after I watch a movie. I'm usually very reflective and thinking about the movie, but that one time I came out smiling. I certainly appreciate J.J. Uh, Abrams and his team for rejuvenating Star Trek. I mean, it's probably their work that gave Star Trek Discovery a chance to shine. So in that case, in that sense, I, I love the three movies. But that's the thing, though. I, I really can't answer this question because they, they appeal to different things, right? The three movies were very heavy on the action, very heavy in the plotting, and even though they didn't really have that much character development, all the character moments, I thought, were, were marvelous. They were, they were great. And certainly uh, Spock's and Kirk's and Bones' qualities shone through at every scene. Whereas for Discovery, they had ample time to develop all of these characters, have them go through many, many struggles, many different situations. So it's very different. And, and another thing to note, of course, is that the Star Trek movies used established characters. So then they didn't really have to spend that much time developing them. You already know what Spock's like. You already know what Bones is like. You already know what Kirk's like. So in that sense, they're very different. Yeah, so I can't answer that question. You can't answer the question. <laughs> I can only ramble on and on about them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. And that's all we have time for because we have to go catch our flights. So we will see you in a bit. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that brief chat with Dr. Peter Gao. We are both incredibly excited for what the second chapter of Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery brings us. Now, what's in store for Strange New Worlds in 2018? Well, due to some special circumstances, I'm actually teaching the astrobiology class at Caltech this quarter which I'm honored to be doing, but as you might imagine, this class is soaking up a lot of my free time. I'm not exactly sure what this will mean for Strange New Worlds, 
I'll still try to produce content on a weekly basis, but we may not have super lengthy interviews like we had last year because arranging, conducting, and editing such interviews is pretty time-consuming. So a lot of these episodes might be shorter, and they might be simplified or abridged versions of my lectures, which the more I think about would be quite easy to do, because I often inject my astrobiology lectures with Star Trek references anyway. It's only logical. Oh, and guess who my teaching assistant is for my astrobiology class? It's Elise Cutts, who was my co-host for the first dozen episodes of Strange New Worlds. So maybe future episodes will feature an astrobiological conversation between us laced with Star Trek jokes and references. I don't know. Probably the upcoming episodes of Star Trek Discovery will help us decide on a trajectory too. So what am I trying to say with all this? I'm just trying to say, honestly, the future is unknown. But that makes it fun and exciting. It's a brand new year. It's 2018. Let's go exploring. Live long and prosper. Live hey, long. Peter. Hi. What's up? We could like we could go really close. We could be like, hi. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's a thing on the internet. It definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you like that? It's relaxing, actually. Yeah. Hi. What is it? It's a microphone. Yeah, we're recording a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> Strange New Worlds, Science and Star Trek podcast. If you're interested, <laughs> look us up. <laughs> 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 it's nice. so funny. It's going to be in the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>